Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Two Black Guys with Good Credit, the show for the financially curious and the financially knowledgeable. Today, we have a special show. Sean, Karen, are you guys excited about today? We are literally so stoked, Sean. I'm extremely excited. You know, I heard about this gentleman from Karen. She, she brought him up. She gave us the 45-minute spiel on this guy, how wonderful he is, how smart he is, not to be intimidated in any way, but he's extremely bright. He's done so many different businesses. Yeah. So yeah. Let, let me introduce James real quick. Let me introduce All you right. quick so everybody knows who you are. This is James Altucher. Um, James and I have known each other for a couple years. I know you through comedy. Um, that's your, like, side gig, is it? But it's how I know you. you no, are- it's, it's, it's the thing I spend the most amount of time on. Right. And Today, it was a, and let me tell you something. Karen loves this man. Like she just raved about him. Karen's and been funneling I, us comedians know, who are bringing financial wisdom. It, it's this, this new treasure trove of finance guidance from the comedy circuit. Right. Exactly. I started it and everyone is following my lead. What do you want? Exactly. What, 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 other, what comedians have you had on? Uh, we had Louis J. Gomez on. Oh, okay. And Karen Margolis. So that's two we had too. You know, in 2016, I think it was, I met with Louis about investing in Gaslight, you know, digital uh, or Gas Digital. I forget what the name is. And I, I looked at it long and hard and I was interested, but ultimately it just wasn't my, it wasn't a bad idea what he was doing and he's been building it well, but it just wasn't my type of thing to invest in. You kind of have to know your lane or just assume you're going to lose money. Right. Oh, I can't, I can't wait to get in this show because I'm trying to, I want to know your lane. I'm, like to me, you're like this highway with about 12 lanes. So I want to try to figure out what your lane is and kind of deep into your deep delve into your mind. Because like I was saying, researching you, I was just fascinated by all the different hats that you wear. 
It's funny because <laughs> I've, I've watched, I've known you for a little while and I've actually watched you get better on stage. I hope you watched me get better on stage too. That's yes. Flag, but, <laughs> but that's been kind of cool actually. And you co-own a comedy club and you're an author of 20 plus books and entrepreneur and you, the big thing people don't know you is you made millions of dollars, lost millions of dollars twice, which is two more times than I've done it. <laughs> and we share custody of a best friend and <laughs> that's how I know <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. But, so at least twice our bank accounts were but were the same what you're, a broken you're, clock <laughs> is right, right well yes. well I, I started off with zero and okay. made a lot of money and then zero, zero. i was i was zero probably a good four times okay. and wow. the best time is when you never had money and you're zero that's the best college you and don't young, have money uh, yeah i want to experience that <laughs> you don't have money and you never made it and you're just trying to get by and you have real friends and that's just the best it's just opportunity in front of you you're not kind of it, it's the, the, those 20s the, your, your early 20s and mid 20s i think is for me when that that time was but i agree with you that's a great oh, man time. that was let, so let, much fun let me ask you the first question let me just set it off so my life, James, is I came to this country in 1996. I worked a little, I worked on Wall Street and I started acquiring real estate, investing slightly into the market. And I can say that I've had slow, steady, continuous growth to achieve, you know, what I've achieved in the last 20 plus years in, in the United States. Right. And where, so where, where I'm always like, from? I come from the country above Canada where everybody, my passport is now worth millions of dollars to you Americans. It's not for sale, James. I can't know we can't we're not allowed to go to Canada you got correctly this is the second time you guys are saying don't come here and the first was in the American Revolution we wanted we thought it would be like hey Canada just join us and you're like uh you guys go back to wherever you're from we're, we're fine. exactly so when I was like reviewing you and reading I was like like we've kind of gone like such different routes in the sense that like people will say like oh Sean you do all this you must be you own these buildings you must be so you take so much risk and I really don't take risk I take calculated risk I'm very conservative in how I do and I've had a continuous steady growth but I've always think has that been my Achilles heel in the sense that could I have achieved much greater wealth had I taken a little bit more risk you know but what I haven't had that roller coaster kind of career that you've had so my question to you is that you know why do you like take on this roller coaster? Because I know you're very calculated when it comes to risk and exposure. I know you understand the metrics behind it. But why the roller coaster? Is it intentional or is it something that you just think happened through happenstance? This is a great way to start because we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get over the big takeaway of the episode and then we could just bullshit for as long as you guys want. <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing is, and this is, so, so I'll answer the, the second part of your question first, which is that the roller coaster is not intentional. If you choose to go on a roller coaster ride of your finances, you're just batshit crazy. Like it is the most painful, worst, horrific thing. The key to making money is to avoid risk. So you have an idea. Let's say the idea is you're going to find low-valued houses. You're going to learn about real estate. You're going to buy buildings. You're going to rent them out. You're going to build up. And over 10 years, 20 years, you're going to make a lot of money. That's an idea. The idea is neither good or bad. What's important is everything you do after that idea is about getting rid of risk. It's all about reducing risk. If you, have, if you could reduce risk as much as possible, 
You can't re reduce it to zero or you don't have a business. If you can right. reduce risk as much as possible, you will make a lot of money and do very well and with as little stress as possible. My problem is, is that I didn't understand. I was really, gr there's three skills, making money, keeping it, growing it. I knew how to make it, but I didn't have any conception of risk. I thought I was just this brilliant guy who could make money over and over again. And I didn't understand. I need to really know about risk. And I it took me, I think it took me like 20 years to understand what risk is and how to avoid it. And I understood little bits and pieces here and there as I was building up, but reducing risk is the most important skill for, for making it, keeping it, growing it. And then the second important skill, like you ask, if you had done, if you had taken more risk, would you have made more money? No. The answer to that question is just simply knowing more about business. So for instance, if you know how to, if you have a better, easier way of finding buildings that are undervalued, you'll make more money. So, so that's just knowing more about your domain and knowing how people value uh, businesses or buildings or skills or whatever it is you're, you're sell it, buying and selling. If you just know more uh, and have more experience in whatever domain you're trying to make money in, you'll make more money. But the key is all along is reducing risk. Every activity, whether it's investing, entrepreneurship, real estate, building a skill, even doing co stand-up comedy, it's all about reducing risk. What about the mindset you have to have to be able to rebound or come back from being broke? Like I'm a big sports fan. And when I think about the concept of that, it reminds me of like, I'm a Laker fan when Kobe, when he would be playing, if the Lakers were down by 20 points in the first half, he would still fight the whole game and make it back all the way. But it, it seems like there's this mentality, I guess, of a fighter, or even being a comedian, getting up on stage and telling jokes that might not work. But what's the mindset you have to have to be the resiliency to, to make it back from broke? Right. So there's, th so there's two kinds of mindset. And I'm not even, I'm not talking about like there's a book mindset that goes into these things called fixed mindset, growth mindset. That's all like academia. I don't pay attention to that stuff. But mindset's really important in two cases. One is the basic case. Let's say you're going into a sales meeting or let's say you're a professional basketball player like you just mentioned an example and you're going onto the court you kind of have to have a mindset like that you're you're better than you are in some weird way or you're better than you think you are like when it's a i go illusion right like you have to have the same mindset to even start doing comedy because you suck so horribly yeah for so long and you have to have it in your head that you don't suck and you're actually kind of great and every time you hear a laugh that's people telling you how great you are and it's actual yeah. psychosis, but you have to have it. Yeah, and there, there's actually a, a, a something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, right. which is this cognitive bias that makes you think you're better than you are in whatever you're doing. <laughs> so for instance, a lot of beginning writers, painters, comedians, actors, they think they're great and nobody gets me. And they are deluded <laughs> into thinking they're great. And, and people always put down Dunning-Kruger bias because it's like a little, it's another way of saying a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but it's actually really great to have, I have a huge amount of this bias. Whatever I do, and that's the problem. Whatever I do, I think I'm absolutely great at it. So that means, at least initially in business and investing, I was not reducing my risk as much because I thought I was so great. But the reality is it's a good bias to have or else you won't continue anything. Right. Because probably the first couple of years I was doing comedy, I mean, I was horrible. I was heckled. <laughs> I was. I didn't know what to do. I did. I was like. Well, your, some of your stage. audience was on the subway train. You were doing. Yeah, yeah. I was, doing, <laughs> I was doing comedy on the subway in order to get better, in order to get more courage. That's when I. It was that. That was like a couple of days after I first got heckled, 
And I'm like, oh, this is harder than I thought. <laughs> I figured I want to go in front of a hostile audience. I, I'm a closet comedian myself, to be honest with you. I tell Karen, I would love to go on stage, but I'm a closet comedian. I think I'm funny, you know, but I don't know how, how well perceived I will be, but I'm a closet comedian. You would start like everybody else. You'd eat it hard for a while. It's comedy goes like this. You're funny as a person. Like, I mean, how many people do you know that are funny that are not comics? Like everybody's funny to me. I think I have so many funny friends who don't go comedy. So you, you're funny naturally. You decide you're going to do comedy. Absolutely hit the grounds. Plummet. You are the least funny person who's ever lived. You suck hard. You can't believe how much you suck. It's humiliating. Yeah. And then you start to crawl your way back to just how funny you naturally were before you even thought to do comedy. Yeah, because it's so, you know, this is a whole conversation into itself. Like comedy. So I've learned a lot of skills in my time and comedy is like literally the hardest skill I've ever had to learn. And that includes investing, entrepreneurship, really being, being a chess master, being a programmer or a tech guy and all sorts of other things. Comedy involves so many what I call micro skills. So to get right. there's no such like let's take business as an example. There's no such skill as business. You can't really say, oh, I'm good at business. Business is really a collection of micro skills. Like mm -hmm. it's sales, it's negotiating, it's marketing, it's management and slash leadership. It's raising money. It's having ideas. It's executing ideas. It's um, convincing people to buy your company uh, or invest in you, which is different from selling. So those are all the sub skills. They're unrelated to each other and you have to be good at all of them to be great at business. Comedy is similar. There's no, like comedy is not the same thing as funny. Funny is one of the micro skills of stand-up comedy. There's also likability, there's stage presence, there's crowd work, there's uh, different, there's storytelling, there's one-liners, there's, you know, there's all sorts of different types of comedy. So there's, there's all these micro skills you have to get good at. And, and for most things that are worth learning, it's really a basket of micro skills that you have to learn. Right. right. It's also like makes up this meta skill, right? So I feel like maybe what you built up with business or with these like big umbrella skills that take forever to build up. Like, you know, you talked about your investing, you, you read 200 books on investing and you're like, I, I can, I can think about investing now, but comedy doesn't work like that. I don't even think business works like that. I think it's like a meta skill that once you master these like bottom up skills, you can do this top down execution everywhere. Yeah. And I think again, with, with, with business, the most important important skill by far is reducing risk. And then there's all those other ones like learning how to value something, do being good at sales, learning how to make a product and then, and how to mix them in creative ways. You always have to be creative in business. Like, I don't know. I could tell you so many stories. I don't know where to begin, but I'll just give you an example. And this is an investing example and not a entrepreneurship example. So let's say, so, in, so in, 2007, I, this friend of mine was starting a company and he was raising money for it. And it was in an area that I liked. Uh, it, he, he wanted to set up a Facebook ad agency. And I had done an, I, I was familiar with the ad agency business. I was a big believer in Facebook in 2007. And, um, but then he told, but I didn't know what to do. It was, you know, who knows? And he told me, Peter Thiel was investing in, in the round, in the same round that I would have invested in if I invested. And Peter Thiel was the first investor in Facebook. So a light went off where I'm like, oh, okay, in the worst case scenario, he's got the first investor of Facebook investing in his company. So, and he's got a Facebook related company. Maybe Facebook will buy his company if he's a total failure. So I felt like even if he messes up completely, he's got Peter Thiel investing, 
Also, Mark Pincus, who started Zynga, which makes all those Facebook games, he was investing. So I figured, okay, the, if are these guys, if, would I argue with Peter Thiel? If I ran into Peter Thiel on the street, would I argue with him and say, Peter, how could you have made a, such a stupid investment? No, I wouldn't, have <laughs> invest, I wouldn't have argued with Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel would just say to me, hey, I was the first investor in Facebook and I started PayPal. What have you done? Like, <laughs> I'm not, so, so if I ever get into a situation where I think to myself, there's no way I would argue with my co-investors on this. In other words, they're smarter than me. They're more sophisticated. They have more ways of understanding this business and how to maybe sell it in a worst case scenario. They have more ways of helping it if bad situations happen. So I begged to invest alongside Peter Thiel. My friend said, okay, you can invest only so much. And the round, he valued the business uh, at $4 million. When the round was closed, it was worth $4 million, and he raised like $1.5 from Peter Thiel, Mark Pincus, me, and a few others. And five years almost to the day later, he sold to Salesforce.com for over $800 million. Good Lord. Wow. And, and during that time, he survived the financial crisis. He pivoted his business model three different times. Uh, and... It was, it was an amazing story, but that's when I started on in the investing side. That's when I said, oh, a very simple way to reduce risk when I invest is always invest with somebody smarter than me at the exact same terms. They can't have different terms than me. They have to have the exact same terms. And that is my only rule now in investing. And, and it's so- All those books you read, all that analysis you did, all that software you built, it comes down to that. Invest with people that have invested before. That's, that's it. That is it. That is I love it. it. I love it. And, you know, I 100% agree with you. And when it comes to that, because, you know, when it comes to business, I always, when people kind of try to sell me on invest in this, do this, and I get them all the time, I always worry about the downside. I'm always worried about, I don't worry about how much money I can make. I worry how much money I can lose and how well yes. I can manage that risk and how manage I can manage that exposure. I'm never sold on the upside. But that theory of surrounding yourself with, people that are smarter than you have more experience in the business. If they're going to do it, they have the cojones to do it. Why shouldn't I? Because if I don't, if I see them and they're not going to have any regrets, I think I always said, like you said, graduate school, finance school, there are some practical skills that you have to have to be successful in. I have so many textbook friends and like there's some practicality that you need to have. And some yeah. of them don't understand that. Right. All the, like, and look, I do think there are good investors who, don't who, who can reduce risk in other ways. And, and I've learned other ways to reduce risk, but the most powerful way to reduce risk is to just simply invest side by side with somebody smarter than me. And since I started doing that, every time I didn't follow my rules, like let's say I thought something was, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. I could get a third of this business because they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to invest and I'm going to make a, a ton of money. I've lost money on 100% of those. And, <laughs> and all the times I invested with somebody smarter than me, I've made money 100% of the time. That has been by far my most successful way. You're going to have a lot of angry people at you, James, man. I know, I know that's not a comfortable space for you right now, but you're going to have a lot of people. With this advice, people are going to be like, oh, my God, he's giving out the secret recipe. Like, you gave out the secret formula to KFC original chicken, man. This is what you just did. You know, that, that happened to me once also with – so I wrote uh, – back in, like, the early OOs, I wrote this software that where I analyzed all the data, all the stock market data since 1946. So every single move that every single stock made since 1946, I had it all uh, downloaded, and I wrote some software to look for highly probable – 
patterns where you could make a trade and you have a high probability of success. So I'll just make this up. Like if Microsoft uh, has bad earnings and then it's down five days in a row, maybe I would invest, you know, maybe my system would say, oh, the past 100 times Microsoft did this, it went up on the sixth day. And so on the evening of the fifth day, I would invest and it would go up on the sixth day. So I had this one pattern that worked literally a hundred times in a row, uh, maybe like 105 times in a row, something like that. And it triggered one morning. And this is, this was like, I called this pattern the ATM machine because I could just, I knew it would make money every single time. And I wrote about it on a, a website called thestreet.com, which is this finance website. And somebody calls me up who I did some tr day trading with. And he's like, what did you just do? You, you just gave away the, the formula, the, the ATM for the ATM machine pattern. <laughs> And I'm like, the don't ATM worry. <laughs> I, I, and I said, don't worry. Nobody reads my stuff. And and what? This is, you think the entire market is going to move just because of something I wrote? And I will tell you, the pattern never worked again. From oh, that moment on. The market corrected itself. The yeah, like I, it. enough people picked it up that it became just random after that. It had worked 105 times in a row. And then after that, it was 50-50. So... And it was such a simple pattern. It triggered all the time. I made so much money with it. But see, that's how I didn't reduce risk in that one case. Right. <laughs> I have a question. What about, uh, aside from investing, like creating? And I know you've, well, you're, you write, um, you've created companies. Like, is there a, because uh, I know a lot of people have good ideas, but they don't know how to execute or complete or take that idea from the good idea to actually execution like what what do you any any thoughts on that process how you mastered yeah. that yeah i mean people say ideas are a dime a dozen execution is everything but that that is not correct like execution ideas are a subset of ideas so you have to get very good at having ideas because there's good execution and there's bad execution like i was talking to a friend of mine about a year ago and she was telling me a business idea and I thought, okay, this business idea sounds d decent. I said, what's your next step? And she's like, well, I want to raise two and a half million dollars, hire a bunch of programmers. I figure it'll take about eight months to a year for them to make the product. And then I'll just go out there and we'll see. And I'm like, that sounds like a really bad way to do this. Like, what if you build the product and spend two and a half million dollars and it's a bad idea? So... I said to her, why don't you manually do this idea? She wanted to write software that kind of makes a special kind of video. And I, I won't get into her whole idea, but I said, this is an idea you can do one at a time manually. Find a customer, pitch the exact idea. And instead of doing it with software, just you do it manually for this customer and see if they'll pay and see if it's a good idea. See if you can do it for 10 customers because you're going to learn while you're doing it manually, you learn which features people like and which features, yeah. features people see how the don't. market see how the market receives it, how see how receptive it is, see how you have to tweak it. And it's one that gets right down to risk risk and exposure before taking two and a half million dollars. Let me start off and see what the, how the market's gonna receive this this initiative that you have. Right. And and you won't have to raise any money. It takes six months to raise two and a half million dollars, maybe. You won't have to raise any money. You could test this idea and then you could see maybe you don't have to implement as much as you thought or maybe it becomes easier to implement. Who knows? I don't know what 
I actually never ran into her again. I don't know what happened to that idea. But, but that <laughs> that's was, how the story ends. <laughs> that's how the story ends. I don't know if it worked or not. But but that's a but that's a good example though of she was gonna go on what I can guarantee wouldn't have worked. Whereas my approach, whether it worked or not, would still would have the doubt. The only downside she had in my approach is that she would learn something and move on to the next idea, and and she would get better at execution. The downside in her approach is that she would waste a year of her life yeah. and millions of dollars and ruin her reputation mm-hmm. and, and so on. So if you can structure testing ideas as experiments, so what's the nature of an experiment? An experiment has, um, you have a hypothesis, oh, I can make money in this way, an experiment, and I'm gonna construct an experiment, so an experiment has huge upside if it works and very little downside if it doesn't work. The, the, again, the only downside in an experiment is you learn something. So Thomas Edison tried 10,000 different filaments before he had a wire to, to light up a light bulb, and would you say he failed 10,000 times? Actually, someone asked him, Did you, how do you feel failing 10,000 times? Right. He said, I didn't fail, I learned 10,000 ways not to light a light bulb. <laughs> And it's true. So I do I do experiments constantly to see if ideas are good or not. I'm Was this your mentality when you you're like your first successful business or when you first started trying and launching stuff? Did you have that mentality or did you kind of develop this through your process or did you kind of start? Uh, developed, I developed it along the way because, again, I wasn't thinking of risk at all when I was starting. I, I did everything wrong in, <laughs> in, in for the first 15 years or so. So it really was not not pleasant. But you and did I, everything wrong and you made a ton of money. Yeah, because there you know, I I I don't want to say I was lucky. I mean, I think despite, I don't believe in luck. <laughs> right, like despite <laughs> not having the skills in business that I needed, I was good enough at what I was doing that I was able to to make money. I was I was really good at coming up with ideas and I was really good at selling, but I wasn't good at reducing risk. I wasn't good at negotiating. I wasn't good at I wasn't good at execution at all actually. Um, <laughs> I was just really good at selling. I'll give you an example. Like one time I had an idea for a, a website that was like kind of social media meets investing. And I asked some I, I outsourced to some designers in India. Here's what I want each page to look like. Send me the pages as if they were finished. And then I went to the CEO of a big uh, financial internet company and I said, here's what I'm working on, but I'm almost, and he's like, this is great. Let's let's partner with this on this together. And I said, oh, you know, Tom, I don't think I can. I'm almost done. I'm already talking to Yahoo, AOL, Google. <laughs> and he's like, what? We're practically family. You write for us. We're, we've been working together for four years. And I'm like, well... Let me think about it. And he's like, look, we'll, we'll advertise you on every page of our website. Uh, we'll link back to your site. We'll put all our extra advertisers on your site. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe you could take like 3 or 4% of the company. And he's like, 3 or 4%? No, we want 50%. And I said, deal. Because <laughs> 50% of something is better than 4% of nothing. Sorry, you just said you weren't a good negotiator. I think that's. I think your negotiating skills are, are not so bad. Are not in, that, so bad. In, that time, in that time, it wasn't so bad. And, 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 and so sometimes you have to do this kind of what, what I call ready, fire, aim approach, which is that you, you, you know, so a great example is uh, uh, Richard Branson. He was a 27 year old magazine publisher. And suddenly he's like, I want to do, I want to make an airline. Like he was just some, he was a music magazine publisher and that's it. And he was 27 years old and, and he could have gone out there and tried to raise a hundred million dollars and get a airstrip and, and get a plane. But no, he didn't do any of that. He just called up Boeing 
and he asked to borrow an airplane. And they and they're like, "Who the hell are you? You're this 27-year-old music magazine publisher. We're not going to just give you a Boeing 747." And he said, "Listen, you have no competition. Uh, or you, British Airways is the only airline in England. So you have no pricing power when when you're selling stuff to British Airways. They're a monopoly. You know, let's give let's make them nervous. Get let's give yourself some uh, pricing power. So why don't you the plane? And then he used the same strategy. Convinced he throw to give him a landing strip he convinced jfk to give him a landing strip and suddenly putting no money down he had an he had an airline so this is a ready fire aim approach well here's my question james before you continue i gotta ask it i'm as you know you may not sell but i'm a black man right here on talking to you and i think i'm a savvy investor do you believe in these incidents and this is like you know two black guys good credit do you believe in these white privilege is an asset does it help and how does it help have you seen it like do you think that Hey, I could have done the same thing. Or is it uh, handsome, handsome privilege? Yes, handsome privilege. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've thought about this a lot actually. Like, so so at one point I was raising money. I was running a hedge fund. So a hedge fund, for your listeners who don't know, is a is sort of like a mutual fund, but not regulated. So I could invest in anything I wanted, and no one's allowed to ask me what I'm investing in, and then I get to keep twenty percent of the profit. So that's the business of a hedge fund, and I was raising money for it. That's one of the skills you have to have is be good at raising money for a hedge fund. And I was thinking to myself. Not only I wasn't necessarily thinking. Well, I was a little bit. I was. I was wondering, <laughs> uh, male versus female, white versus black. Do, does that change people's perception? But also the specific way I look. I look like I'm a guy with a computer. Who, <laughs> you look smart. You Come look, on, you, you the, the like definition the of smart guy is like a picture of you. You look right. like the guy who invented the first computer. <laughs> right. Exactly. You look like you have a computer uh, yeah. in a house somewhere. <laughs> so, so I could go into a meeting and my sales approach not that not that I was even lying about it, is that I would just talk all this computer stuff which I had knowledge of I was a computer guy right. you know, back in the beginning and uh, uh, so I do think if I, I I would wonder specifically actually you mentioned handsome privilege I think actually I had ugly privilege <laughs> I, think if I, was like, I think if I was like a six foot four like super handsome guy I would not have been able to raise money and instead, I'm going in there like, hey, anyone want to play a game of chess? <laughs> and like, then they would give me, they, I would raise money. But, you know, uh, uh, so, so I do think you have to make use of what you have. So yeah. some, sometimes you want to be something. So, so there's, forget about identity politics. There's like identity business. So assuming yeah. an identity, the right, correct identity for you to, to, and making the most of it does help in, in business. And, 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 you know, I think not that the, not that the playing field is level. There's things you can do. I can't, there's things I can do. You yeah. probably can't, but it's, it's getting more and more, um, in terms of, in terms of what you have the potential to do and what I have the potential to do. I think that's that playing field is, is leveling. Like I was meeting, um, God, what's his name? Uh, the guy who owns the weather channel. Channel, Byron. Oh, Byron Allen. Byron Allen. Yeah, yeah. He's such I know a Byron. Smart guy. And I was, I was talking to him about, about this. And look, he's, he's really built up an empire. Like he's, he's a comedian so too. Smart about it. Something about you comedians. <laughs> yeah, he was a comedian too. He was like the youngest guy ever on the the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson when he was a kid. He used to write for. He was telling me the story. Uh, this guy saw him do stand up at the comedy store in in L.A. and said, "Hey, we're putting together this writing group for this one comedian. Can you come tomorrow morning?" He was 16 years old, so he skips high school and he goes and, and on Sunset Boulevard they're all meeting. They're writing comedy stand up material for J.J. Walker. Jimmy Walker and uh 
uh, the other people writing were Jay Leno, David Letterman, and him. Wow, that's a so, hell of a room. <laughs> yeah, and so later on, you know, of course, Byron Allen owns the Weather Channel, and Jay Leno and David Letterman were moderate successes. And uh, so, but um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. To, for, for your question specifically, I don't know if you could have, and just being honest, I don't know if you could have raised money with the exact people. I, I, I raised money specifically from Jewish people in New York City where I even looked smarter than them. And <laughs> you know, so that was my group to raise and, and, I, and, and I agree with you, James. And I think it's not, I don't think, I'm not, I don't know to say it's good or bad, but it's, it's what it is. And so even with myself, when I'm looking to do business, I don't let it be a hindrance. Like you said, I just find, try to work on what I excel at best, what I can leverage best, what I can communicate best and just go from there. I don't let it like, like you said, there's a room that you can enter that you can get in and raise money. And there's a room that I can get in and raise money too, but there is differences. And I think people need to understand that. I so would, I agree with you 100%. Just piggybacking on that. It's like, I don't dwell on it, but I agree, you know, things, privilege exists in, in all different facets and all different ways. And I know like recently, like there was the news report about the uh, Wells Fargo uh, CEO basically saying, oh, I can't find any black people to, so whatever he said, he said it inartfully about like finding people of color to hire for these high profile jobs. And then there was this backlash because it was, I mean, he, it was bull what he said and he, he corrected it, but it's like, you do think about the rooms that you, when you're stepping into, there are preconceived notions, there are biases and that's just life. But it's, it, it is interesting though, but the thing that works against you works for you as well. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of stuff and it's a lot of it's true about how it's hard to be a girl and you know, everybody's trying to have sex with you and everybody wants something from you and they think you're not funny and whatever. And that, that is true. You know, I've gotten on stage and I can feel the energy of the audience going, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want that you don't already have from us? But at the same time, it helps. <laughs> it helps. You go, can I have some stage time? And people are like, no problem, girl, come right on through. They, they give you a pass. You know, the bar is so low that you just have to be a little bit funny. Like, it's the thing that hurts helps. You know what I mean? Well, admittedly, like, I know I have to work twice as hard and I do work twice as hard and it's okay. Because like you said earlier, like the learnings that I've gotten along the way, like I used to always tell my mother, I'd rather win a million than earn, than, I'd rather earn a million than win a million, win a lot. She'd always say, buy a lot of like, no, I'd rather earn it because what I've learned along the way, the stories that I can tell and the victories that I've had and the losses that I've had as well, it's been a great run. So I don't, I understand, you know, that, hey, I, I may have to, can't get through the same door, I have to work a little extra harder, but it's okay because I'm happy with the returns on my investment, even if they're not as high as James going into the room, but the returns that I've got have been more than just money. It's been like exposure and experiences. And, and by the way, my, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't really so good at raising money for a hedge fund. I did raise enough to start one, but not, I didn't raise like a billion dollars to have a, 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 a huge one that you could generate wealth. I think actually the six foot four, you know, handsome country club guy going to, you know, who was really, who was in a fraternity at, right. uh, you know, a big party school that ever, all the rich kids went to that guy is really the best position to raise money for a hedge fund right so yeah. and i couldn't i couldn't defeat that or, or the people who were doing illegal stuff i couldn't i couldn't beat them <laughs> because until they were found out they were competitors and their returns were better well one more one more quick question one more, i know we're gonna but one more quick question i have for you and it's I, I like i said i watched all your episodes i read a little bit about you and you know i think everybody has patterns and that's always been my thing to figure out somebody's pattern and get to know what kind of drives them and i think 
think if you really look at people, they, they, they can't help following their own pattern. And when I was reading about you, I, I, I couldn't figure out your pattern. Like I, even what was shocking is that you lived off 15 items for two years. That doesn't seem like a capitalistic, greedy, entrepreneurial guy. So my question was like, okay, I don't believe like money motivates. Like with me, opportunity motivates me, exposure, meeting people like yourself. And if money is to make out of it, then I'm completely happy and I will not refuse it. But what is your like driving mechanism? Like what drives you? Yeah, I don't, I, I think on, I think my pattern is to try not, is to actively try not to have a pattern. So I, I really- oh, Congratulations, you've succeeded because I can't figure it out. I really love doing what I love to do. And I think the entire period where I was chasing money, for instance, starting a hedge fund, I was just, ch- that's the business of money. And I was so desperately unhappy and I, I made a living from it, but I wasn't like really, that successful at it and I re- and you know the past five six years the main activity I've done has been stand-up comedy which believe me is not a money maker Isn't and in, and the sh- <laughs> fastest way to lose a lot of money is to invest in a comedy club like that just sucks. <laughs> so and and but I loved I loved every aspect of it and people just couldn't under- like people from different parts of my life were like telling me like what the hell are you doing <laughs> You're, we we all know you're funny. Why do you want to go on stage and tell jokes to a bunch of strangers? And I'm like, it's not it's not that. You don't get it. It's a, it's something different. And nobody would get it in in that part of my life. And so I had to build friends in the comedy community and who who obviously would get it. And just all the time, I'm very much in, and I I've wondered to myself like, I would spend thirty to fifty hours a week studying or pursuing comedy and i've thought i've since thought back to myself and said gosh if i had spent five or six years working on businesses you know i gosh with all that i know now i probably would have had a lot more you know money but then again i've done well and i'm living the exact 100 percent the lifestyle i want to be living like there's not a single thing i would change at this moment and wow, congratulations and i i'm doing stand-up comedy tomorrow night actually and i just well, did last weekend well james is there of all the things that you've accomplished and we're, we're going to about to take a quick break then we have a few more questions for you but with all the things you've accomplished in business is there a dream uh out there you know just between us in the room no one else listening is there some something out there that you you still want to accomplish or that you you know the big goal or the big one out there that you you haven't done yet yeah i mean there's a lot of things uh but you, 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 like I've, like I've written, you know, a lot of books and stuff and, and tons of articles. And, and I think I'm pretty good. Like a lot of people have read my, my stuff. Uh, but I've always wanted to write a good page turner thriller novel. So, and again, that's not an activity that necessarily makes money. I mean, it might, or it might not, the odds are it doesn't. And, and yet that is something I'm willing to do instead of starting another business. I will say during this economic lockdown is the first time I've felt a little bit more entrepreneurial in like maybe over 10 years. Like I really just staying at home and being unable to go outside. I, I started having ideas for businesses and I've, I've started doing the experiments to test out if those business ideas work. Okay. Well, cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break. So uh, I hope all you listeners are out there are enjoying this as much as we are and getting some uh, takeaways from James's experience. Uh, so stay tuned, keep it locked. And we'll be right back with more two black guys with good credit. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. I consider like our show, honestly, I say it all the time. I don't know if it's going to sound like a bad thing, but we're like the Cosby show of financial literacy. Like we're not, we're really people from all different, like our fan mail comes from people of all different likes and colors. We're two black guys, good credit, but we've had as much fan mail from white people this than from pre, as black this people. This is before Cosby was putting things I'm, in. I was going to say, so you yeah. be careful. I'm just trying to make them understand. Although we're teaching financial literacy and we're called two black guys with good credit, People are receiving us and receptive to what do we do, and they're getting it and they're understanding. We actually gave right. Karen a drink of something before her episode. Yeah, right, right. right. I think for the record, I when Sean, because Sean said this to me before with the coffee shot, and I was, and I, 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 I not the best. I'm, I'm using it. I hope people get it. If you're born, if you lived around our age, you get it. We're all eighty. We live. Up, I we do get it. There's so much opportunity. Like obviously, I signed on to the show. I'm a comic and I do comedy podcasts, but I did the show. I was like a fan of the. Show show i listened to it i did the show she went to my class i went to the class you know matt my boyfriend or way that you met at um at your house that holiday party not you my my other a tall white matt um (laughs) wait 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 is this a hedge fund manager the hedge fund guy the look of the hedge fund guy that's that's matt yeah like he manages a hedge fund yeah you you met games at uh it was at your house at your christmas party okay and so uh for a while i think you were you you split up or no we were yeah we're back on oh lord i mean it's neither here nor there but But he put me onto this thing and it was like, this is such a good show. Like, this is such a cool thing. And yeah, I don't know if there's, it just feels like, I don't know, for me personally, for the show, there's like such cool opportunity, such a niche, like such a cool of the culture of the moment thing right now. You know, I don't, I I know about a little bit about podcasts. I don't know anybody is doing this. I don't know any podcast like this. No, and that's key. I think, I think really for any, I mean, Peter Thiel, once again, um, he says this is that every business sh- you should you should strive to be a monopoly in what you're doing. Right. So even if it's a podcast and there's two million podcasts, if what you're doing is unique, then that's a monopoly. Yeah, right. right. And really, I think our thing is like 
to just get it out there. Like it's, it's, it's such a cool show. It actually changed my finances. <laughs> and to be, uh, to be fair, the bar was so low. <laughs> like I was not checking my credit score. I was barely checking my bank account. I was paying fees and whatever. And I'm like still doing that, Sean, don't listen. But, <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's honestly, there's so, if there's me, look at me. Like I'm the canary in the coal mine of a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm like a middle, I, I think I have some talents somewhere, but I'm middle of the road in a lot of places and this is one of them it like moved the needle for me i was so like i'm just like so sold on this project but but you know what karen i would say i am very bad at personal finance like i don't check my credit score i I actually i have ptsd about looking at what's in my bank account (laughs) because i remember because one time when i was going broke and this was like in 2002 i had had i had had just a year earlier i had had 15 million dollars cash in my checking account and then i just 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 threw it all away. I just like set it all on fire, like literally. Okay, and- so when you're doing that, are you still managing risk at that point? Are you still like looking at things objectively, say I'm looking at risk, I'm like exposure? No. This is this is well before I had the word risk in my vocabulary. I had never risk, I I'm not gonna take risks. I'm I'm me. I'm a genius. And so I lost everything. I wasn't spending it. I was just I was literally investing it and losing it. Like I was I was not taking into account risk at all and there was one point i look at my bank and and my expenses were through the roof because what did i do i did buy like the biggest apartment in new york city practically and uh you know i was i was investing all this money and and losing it and one time i look at my bank account and i had 143 dollars left total like that's it trauma that is a slap in the nuts (laughs) yeah i was i was completely i thought i was gonna kill myself like honestly because it's one thing if you just have that and you have a job and you're making a living and whatever you're doing what you've always been doing but then for me i had thought i was i thought i was rich for forever and then 143 dollars left and i was so stupid and i knew i was stupid then and and i just was so depressed uh but, but since then, I've had a hard time looking at my bank account. And I'll tell you what changed me was about a year ago, I finally started looking at my bank account yeah. by accident. I accidentally <laughs> clicked on the screen and I'm like, what the hell? And I saw that an ex-girlfriend of mine had been stealing a regular, no. oh, regular 10000 a month from me for years. Wow. Wow. And you didn't know? I didn't know. And this was just a year Man. ago. And, and when so, you caught it, what did you call it? What did you, did you call him? Like, hey, yeah, yeah. Karen? I, I, I called her. <laughs> I called her and I said, this is, this was stealing. Like, you know, this is like a bad thing. And she said, well, it was a bad thing. I thought I was going to spend my life with you. And I guess not. And, this was good WAP. She said, this was some good WAP. And, and I, said, <laughs> I said, I said, well, you know, relationships end. That's like a normal thing that some relationships don't work out. But what you did was actual stealing. And she's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. She's like, she wouldn't own up to it at all. And she, she didn't own it. She admitted wow. doing it, but she's like, uh, you know, that's it. What are you going to do? And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to do anything. So that, that's that. I learned my lesson. I mean, I wrote it off against my taxes. So I got. I what, what was the write off? What did you say? What did you say? What was I the write off? I think I said, um, um, I, it was like, it was like maybe two years. I think I said, uh, uh, it's like a $240,000 business expense. <laughs> so I, was, I was paying for an, I was paying for an office. Year, some dumb so you, she just, level 
year after year losses, pay $750 in taxes. <laughs> it, it, well, it really was like a cost of doing business, you know. Just put in brackets WAP, W-A-P. If you don't know what that means, look it up. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Just put in brackets WAP. That's yeah. what uh, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you because we, we on this show, we do a lot of talking about real estate. And Sean is like, that's his like passion has been, been, you know, buying property. And can you break down your thoughts on real estate for our listeners? Sure. Uh, but I will, I will say there's a difference between real estate doing it for a living and um, the normal act of buying a home and establishing roots, which many Got people it. feel they need to do. So I think buying a home for the sake of buying a home is a ridiculous, ridiculous a ridiculously bad financial decision and wherever you buy anywhere in america anywhere in the world you think it's a bad decision no but particularly most of the mostly in america and probably most other places although there's some exceptions which i can explain but people say oh your rent is like flushing money down the toilet and and when you own it's like that's yours is it really yours like if you if you miss first off you're you borrow if, if anyone had told you, like, just think about it in terms of risk. If anyone said, you know, Sean, Matt, Karen, I want you to buy, I've got this really great investment for you. I want you to buy this one little stock that no one knows about. And, and you'll say, okay, sure, James, I'll buy this stock. You want like $100? No, 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 no. I want you to put all the money in your bank account <laughs> into this one stock. And then I want you to go to the bank and I want you to buy, f borrow, four times as much money as your life savings. And I want you to put all of that into this one little stock. It'll be 6% interest. So it'll be over like 20 or 30 years. Don't worry about it. And, and just trust me on this. It'll, it'll go up because these stocks always, these tiny little stocks always go up. You would say, if I said that to you, you would say, James, that is the stupidest idea ever. I would <laughs> never do that. Um, you tell me to buy one stock with all my money, my life savings, and then borrow 400% more and put all that in and just trust that this stock's going to go up. Yeah. Yeah. Just trust me. That's stupid, but that's what people do. Oh with the house. <laughs> well, mean... it's not an investment, right? It's actually not an investment by, by the definition of investment, right? An investment is something you put your money in, you make money without taking your money out and it makes you money at greater than the rate of inflation. Right. And so well, that's an investment though. And I'm I not hear the exceptions. An but I'm saying that a single family home that's supposed to appreciate, but really actually kind of is like a store of value type of thing is not really an investment. You can like remortgage your house or borrow against equity and then you're in debt, but you, you're not necessarily making money on that. Right. Well, the, the idea is hopefully that, you know, 10 years later, you know, if you buy an apartment, let's say in, in a city, you buy it for $100,000 and 10 years later, it's 200,000 and you, you made money. But sometimes- What are the exceptions to the rules? You said there were exceptions. I want to hear the exceptions before I answer you. Well, 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 well I, just want, I just want to explain a little more why it's a bad investment is because A, we all know from 2008, 2009 that uh, housing prices can go not just a little bit down, but way down. In fact, prices in New York City right now are, are going down. So this is the next time after 2008 that prices of houses are going down. The other thing is it's not diversified, so it doesn't have the quality, it's too leveraged. So it has all the qualities of a bad investment. It's not a guarantee that you make money. When you absolutely need the money, that's usually the time when you can't sell, like, like right. a, de a depression or a recession or a 2008. And 
you have to also spend a lot of time and extra money on maintenance and things can go wrong. Like I rent my, my house and the good thing about it is I could leave. So I'm not, when you own also, you have to work near where you own. And whereas I could work anywhere because I could just leave where I am right now by renting. This is why I lived in Airbnbs. I was so against any roots at all. I did the abs absolute reverse. I lived in Airbnbs where I could just live day by day in a place and then go to the other side of the country or the other side of the world and live there for a few days. But with renting, uh, you know, again, you could say, you could argue, oh, you're just flushing money down the toilet. But when you own a house, the maintenance, the property taxes, uh, the interest payments on the, the loan, all these things could easily add up to, to more than the rent because you don't know how much maintenance you're going to have. You don't know how property taxes are going to rise. And who owns who owns your house? The bank owns it if you don't pay that your quote-unquote rent, your payment, your monthly payment, or the government owns it if you don't pay property taxes. So you don't actually own it for a long time. Right. But the exceptions, which I did do, is there's there are strategies you can use. Like, for instance, I went to Panama, and Panama, the economy is, uh, this is in 2018, so I can say the economy in 2017 grew by 29%, and housing prices didn't go up as much. So I found a developer who was mid-project. He was building an apartment building, and so you can buy, he, he wasn't finished with the apartments yet, so that's a discount, right? You can buy an unfinished apartment is cheaper than a finished building. So I found a developer who was working on a, a an unfinished building, uh, but, he, but he had a, I did my due diligence. He had a great track record in Panama of finishing, like he had finished 30 prior buildings. So I'm reducing the risk uh, and I'm reducing the risk by buying at a discount because unfinished apartments are cheaper than finished ones. And then I had a further discount, which is that Americans in Panama get discounts compared to Panamanians because he's going to try to attract when he, once he finishes the project, he could say, Oh, Americans have been buying here and, uh, uh, you know, you'll get, you know, if you, if you, Americans make a building safer in foreign countries, you know, in terms of as an investment. So I got a, I got a discount because of that. And so I had two discounts and I, and I knew he had a good track record. So I felt like I was pretty safe, like Panamanian and the, the economy was booming. So I figured Panamanian real estate would have to go down about 40% for me to lose money on this investment. And so I did the same thing in Portugal, in Brazil, in uh, San Miguel, Mexico. But uh, in December of 2019, I've been doing this for about a year and a half. In December of 2019, I decided you know what? I don't really like being in this business. It's not my thing. <laughs> I wanted to use, I, w I just wanted the cash back. I like to have cash and I wanted to maybe start, uh, start something. So December, 2019, I did a deal and I got all the money back at cost. Like I didn't make money. I didn't lose money. I just got the money back. And then two months later, you know, the world economy collapsed because of wow. COVID. So I just got lucky there. So can I ask you like, honestly, just like hard facts for people who listen to this show, cause everyone wants to make money. And we talked about investing in real estate or not investing in real estate. And you said that um, your investment strategy is to invest alongside people who are smarter than you with their same terms, but not everyone. Some people are surrounded by 
only idiots <laughs> and right. aren't, aren't, don't, don't know those people. So to your mind, like people just casually listening, what are ways to, what is like a bulletproof investment strategy people don't know, or like good areas or companies to invest in right now? People are like, let me buy on a dip or whatever, All right. um, or things that seem like good investments, but actually they're not. Right. So, so, so by the way, just one of the ways I reduce risk with this foreign real estate thing is I found a guy who was smarter than me who traveled the world constantly finding these developers with great track records. Like they never failed at finishing a building and he looked for countries where the GDP was, the economy was improving and he guaranteed in advance all these, these double discounts. So I knew I was getting a good deal. So I co-invested only if he was already going in at the same Right. Deal as me. So that was, I just used the same strategy that I use on the Facebook related company. So, um, you know, one way to do this with the public stock market is you can look up, well, what stocks does Warren Buffett own? And then, and then you could see, you could see what stocks did Warren Buffett just buy in the past three months. And then you could look at the stocks and you could see, oh, well, I can get this stock at a price lower than Warren Buffett got it. And again, whether I like the stock or not, whether I like the company or not, am I really going to, if I run into Warren Buffett at a party, am I going to say, Warren, I can't believe you invested in that. Are you an idiot? No, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to put my, I'm, I, it's like Warren Buffett is my free intern and I can, and he tells my little intern delivers me my coffee and tells me a stock to buy. And then I could buy it even cheaper than Warren Buffett and I don't have to pay him a dime. So that's a decent, stock market strategy. Although to be honest, I do not like investing in the stock market at all right now. Really? So, uh, oh, is it like don't catch a falling knife kind of thing. No, I, I just think it's a little bit, uh, again, there's a lot of good stock market strategies just for me. I have like a better strategy, which is to find private companies, um, where smarter people are investing with me and you get like, you can't find a $4 million company on the stock market that's gonna then sell for 800 million five years later, but you can do that if you invest in private companies. And so uh, uh, I stick to that strategy almost exclusively, but an even better strategy is to be an entrepreneur, but that's a very painful strategy if you don't like entrepreneurship. So for a long time, I did not like entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and I've made a lot more money from investing than being an entrepreneur, but lately I've, I've started being an entrepreneur again. And we'll, well see how that's it goes. like the time the time is now right like i'm with you this past six months i i'm not i'm so risk averse like i hate it i'm a girl <laughs> i don't know why i got into comedy it's like i'm i everything freaks me out <laughs> and i hate taking risks but like here i am like starting businesses and taking stuff on and like um and listen okay so you have to forgive me i'm gonna mention this for like two seconds okay uh because we just I, I have to segue into this question and it's so relevant um, but you, you know, you wrote the article, New York is dead forever, whatever. We're not going to get into it. Um, but like, we're all four of us, New Yorkers here, right? So <laughs> we have to ask, are we like, in are, trouble? We, are we good? <laughs> what well, is up? And what can we do? Honestly, you're not, you're not wrong. You made good points in the article. What can we do to like, not just insulate, but thrive like right now? Well, I mean, every time there's a problem, there's an opportunity. So New York City is definitely, I mean, I just looked today, just like two hours ago, I looked at my building in New York where I rent an apartment and 
I've never seen more than two apartments for sale at any one time in the building. It's not that there's not that many apartments in the building. There were 17 apartments for sale oh, in wow. the building. Like you're Manhattan, at least they I don't know what's going to happen to real estate. It's it's, but it doesn't, it doesn't look or feel good right now. My article aside, just like based on, you know, anecdotal data, data, like what I just said and what I'm hearing from everyone else. But I think, I think Brooklyn won't be hit as hard as, Manhattan. And, uh, I don't know. I think, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a major problem. What I get worried about with in general is Manhattan, like de Blasio doesn't realize how broke 2021 Manhattan is or 2021 New York city is. He doesn't realize that tax revenues are probably going to be 50% in 2021 of what they were in 2019. And he just doesn't have the budget to support that. So what's he going to do? He's going to have to fire garbage collectors. He's going to have to fire police, teachers, healthcare workers, subway workers. And then that creates a cycle. Fewer people will want to move to a city where there's garbage everywhere, uh, where there's less police, where there's less teachers. So New York City is going to transform into something different, but it's going to be more, you know, real estate prices. Eventually rentals will go down. More and more young people will move in. People will always want to live in New York City. And hopefully that begins to find a footing where, you know, the next New York City, it will, it will be different from this New York City, but the next New York City will sprout from that. But meanwhile, though, a lot of young people are leaving New York City. A lot of uh, wealthy people are leaving New York City. The taxpayers are leaving New York City. So there's going to be big financial problems. But... Again, in every problem, in every crisis, there's there's an opportunity. You're going to have a city with 8 million people who are struggling um, because of worse circumstances in the city. That's going to create a lot of opportunities. I'm, I'm sure of it. So I don't know what businesses will be appropriate. Maybe it'll be not yet, but maybe four or five years from now, real estate, maybe longer, maybe less. I don't know. And well, I'm, I'm going long on New York. I'm not going short. I'm, I'm actually looking to acquire more real estate. I believe this is like what's happening in the 80s where everybody was worried about this crack epidemic and like 42nd Street was like a prostitution area. Yeah. So I'm actually looking to acquire real estate, but I'm doing, I'm managing the risk. I'm being conservative. To me, for me to buy a multifamily building, it has to be able to support itself at 70% of the rental income plus one vacancy. Yeah, see- that is a good formula for managing risk. And then another formula, which I'm sure you use some variant of this, is you look for, you, you want to have an extra, um, an, you want to have an unfair advantage when you buy the building. So like when I described what I was doing in Panama, I had an un, two unfair advantages. I was buying a, uh, into a project that was uncompleted, so I had a discount, and I was an American, so I got another discount. So I had two right. unfair advantages. But a, a common way to have an unfair advantage in real estate is to find out through one way or the other, is the seller dealing with death, debt, divorce, disease? Because (laughs) (laughs) like, let's say, let's say two people get divorced. They might be willing to do a a fire sale at a cheap price just because they're sick of each other and they need to get the money out of the house. So, and you, you could see all this stuff. Like there's public records who just died, who's in debt, who's got a tax lien on them. So there's lots of a variety of ways you could get an advantage. I wouldn't just go and buy like a building in Manhattan right now if it's 10% off because 
there's a good chance it could end up being 50% off. Exactly. But, you know, I, exactly. I think you kind of figure out, you know, like you said, that it's got to be the income has to support itself, even if it's only 30% full or 70% full or whatever. And then it's helpful if you have one of these D's on your side, because that gives you an, an unfair advantage when, when buying. In, exactly. In, this, in, the, in the same vein of, of projecting the future and also sticking with the theme of the D's, what about like, you've made a lot of money in like digital, like the digital revolution. So there's your other D, digital. Like you were on the early side of like all this tech stuff. Do you see, is this tech revolution kind of coming to an end? And do you think, do you see what the next wave is? Or are you already kind of trying to plan to see what's next? Or is, are we still in the midst of this digital revolution? Yeah, uh, we're, we're totally, we're totally not even in the middle of it. We're still in the Hello? beginning of it. And really but, the beginning. Wow. But I would not invest on that, on that thesis. I only would invest if I have a co-investor smarter than me. And <laughs> so consequently, I'm my, I, I, I don't even know what some of my businesses do. If someone says, Oh, you know, so-and-so is investing. I'm like, okay, where do I send the money? Don't, oh, don't you want to know about the, no, just tell me where I wire the money. Send me an email where I wire the money. And I've literally, you know, I would be driving with my wife. I would say, pull over and in the highway, I would just wire the money. I don't even need to know what the business is. That's, I, if, if someone who is super successful, good entrepreneur, uh, uh, is investing side by side with me and is passionate enough to call me and tell me about it, then I'm investing. And so consequently, I'm in food companies, clothing companies, digital, many digital companies, many tech companies, because that's my area. But I'm, I'm even in a law enforcement company. I'm in a company that makes a, a non-lethal device for police. And then it just so happens that's the hottest area on the planet right now. Right. So, so I got, I got the so, wraparound, the wraparound thing that shoots them and wraps them around and ties yeah. them up. That, that yeah. Yeah, I saw, yeah. We're, we're, we're talking to every police force in the world right now. And uh, can I get one for Brooklyn? Can you create a cloak for the black man that makes me look like a, a white guy? <laughs> like, <so. laughs> uh, probably cannot do that. But <laughs> an interesting idea. You can make a cloak which takes the the back uh, is a video camera filming what's behind you and the front is a projector projecting what is in back of you and so you look transparent so but but ahead, this rap thing actually you asked about brooklyn so one of the people I, I i and i got to know him really well to the point where we're good friends now but eric adams is the brooklyn borough president and yeah. we demonstrated the rap uh, to him and it kind of and he was on the police force in new york city for 22 years so it was really good feedback when we were showing him years ago uh the device uh, and he thought it was amazing. And now Andrew Yang uh, loves it and, and has spoken about it and tweeted about it. And so uh, we're, we're excited. But that was just, I only did that one. I had no clue. I only did that one because a friend of mine was doing it. Let's rap about it. Yeah. <laughs> Next question for you. Um, and this is uh, one of my favorite questions when it comes to finance. I'm always about um, building generational wealth and for the next generation and making sure that my kids are set for the next generation. What, what advice do you have around um, building generational wealth and like, how are you like setting up your own children to kind of take over your, your legacy? Because you're like this self machine that's just all over the place. How are you able to like kind of build for the next generation? Well, a lot of people have this formula of, you know, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and that shifts over time. I don't do stocks at all. Uh, unless I'm invested in a company that goes public and I just keep holding on to it. Uh, but I do think there's good ways to invest 
if, if you're investing in stocks, there's something which is a little boring and it's a little, most people haven't heard of it. There's these stocks called closed end funds that are basically these sets of municipal bonds that pay enormous, enormous tax-free dividends. And I think those are good, safe places to invest. And I have some strategies around that, but it's not that important. But really for me, the way I, I build generational wealth is either through entrepreneurship, which is not, I don't recommend to anybody, or investing <laughs> in this in private companies. And to, to Karen's earlier point, you have to kind of network to find the smart people to co-invest with, but it's getting to be easier and easier to do that. Like there's a company called AngelList where uh, you can find really good angel or venture capital investors who will publicly advertise what they're investing in and allow you to co-invest with them in these things called syndicates. So I haven't done one of these investments, but that is one way to piggyback uh, really smart investors. Or you could follow the Warren Buffett strategy I described earlier, or you could do these closed-end funds with really high dividends, or you could do, here, here's another thing, like, uh, and this is related to New York City. Let's say, let's say businesses, a lot of people, when they get older, they want to sell their business, but 70% of businesses shut down without being sold because they can't find a buyer. So you can find like a local laundromat that is hurt by the whole crisis and maybe the guy wants to retire or the woman wants to retire and you could say, listen, I'll buy your laundromat and I know you were asking before the pandemic, you were asking for $100,000. I'll pay you $10,000 upfront and then for the next five years, I'll pay you 20% of the profits each year. And so you could basically buy that business for $10,000 and just make sure, you know, it's the profits it pays for itself or whatever. There's all sorts of deals and negotiations you can work out, particularly right now when the city is in crisis. This is how you take advantage of a crisis is you could, they would have shut down the business anyway. So it's not like you're hurting them, but you can work out a good deal for yourself and buy small businesses around town and go of, long. Cool yeah, and, and combine them mm -hmm. together, but you're but you're reducing risk because you're buy you you can negotiate well, you could do special deals, and they can potentially make their full amount if your profits are good. So uh, uh, so it's they're they're taking a little risk, and you're taking a little risk, but you're both reducing risk. They're reducing the risk of sh being forced to just shut down. You're reducing the risk of paying the full amount, and uh, you know that's another way to to and and, and don't and one thing that's very important for me. I never use more than 1% of my net worth on any one investment. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, uh, when I calculate net, net worth also, I add in intangible net worth. So I add in what I think my private investments are worth. And, but I will never spend more than 1% on any one investment. So this way, if a business fails, okay, I lost 1% of my net worth. And if a business does great, oh, okay, I just doubled my net worth. So, you know, the, up, the upside is always, you always want to make sure the upside is much greater than the downside. But what, I mean, okay, but like, look, not everybody's smart. Not everybody hustles. Not everybody's funny or good looking or has like shiny hair or whatever. <laughs> what if- How do dumb people win? What, well, that 
honestly, what if you're stupid? What if you're lazy? What if you have a weird <laughs> head? Like, what if your face tilts to one side? Like, how do you? Okay, but you're describing me. Rich. <laughs> I, I have gone dead broke so many times after making millions. I'm stupid. Okay, I do have a funny shaped head. <laughs> and people make fun of my looks all the time whenever I'm on Twitter or YouTube or whatever. And okay, so like in the strat, every, everything has a method. So in the strategy I just described, let's say you're in Brooklyn and you want to buy a bunch of laundromats. You go to your accountant or you go to a lawyer and you say, hey, tell me if, if any of your clients wants to retire or is going bankrupt and needs help and I'll make them a, an offer they can't refuse. And your accountant says, well, I know a guy who's in this good location, but he wants 100,000. Okay, no problem. You go to the guy and you say, hey, I'll, you're, you're not gonna be able to sell this laundromat. 400,000 people just left New York City. It's not like people are eagerly moving in and buying laundromats. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you $5,000 now, and I'll give you 10% of the profits for the next 10 years. You say your profits are you know, 60,000 a year, so you'll, you'll make your full amount or you know whatever and uh uh and then you just do that with 30 different laundromats and two say yes and now you're in the laundromat business and, <laughs> and then you take those laundromats and now you go to the bank and you could borrow money to fix them up or buy the next laundromat and one thing that's really interesting is and this is what i didn't know when i started business but now i'm much more aware of is that depending businesses are the way you value a business is weird like it's it's more art than science and a small laundromat might be only valued at two times earnings. So if the laundromat made $10,000 in profit last year, maybe it's worth 20,000 now. But if the laundromat made a million dollars in earnings last year, then maybe it's worth 20 million now. So a million dollars in earnings from any business might be worth 20 times earnings. But a small business, 10,000 earnings, might only be worth two times earnings. Right. So the more laundromats you combine together, the more, of a multiple, the more you Return. multiply earnings. So you don't even have to increase the revenues or profits of the business. Just buying more businesses makes your investment more valuable. And so that's another way to wow, make money is by going from small to large, the multiple of earnings expands. And I didn't understand that in, I get in it. when I started that's... doing business, but it's a, it's a, an incredibly useful thing to understand because that's a way, the way a lot of people make money is by well, aggregating a bunch of small businesses. Like, let's say, let's say I bought 20 businesses for two times earnings and they were all earning $10,000. So that means I spent 400,000. Um, but now maybe I could sell it for 20 times. Well, now I could, I just spent 400,000, but I could sell it for 4 million because I turned something small into something big. You can sell them all as a, as a unit rather as one aggregate amount. Yeah. And it's a portfolio versus just selling one individual. Mm -hmm. You bought them for, you bought them for 50% and now you sell them for 400% or something like that. Yeah. So here's my question then, since you said you're anti-entrepreneur, but it seems like you're investing in entrepreneurs. Yeah. Isn't there some kind of hypocrisy there? No, some people love being entrepreneurs. <laughs> and so what happens is, They'll own a nice 40 to 60% of their business. I but you're telling them I hate what you're doing. I, I don't want to do what you're doing, but I'm going to invest in you. Yeah, like one guy, I remember That's one smart. guy. Do what you, do what you love. Yeah, like the, the one guy I invested in, I called him up one time to get an update. He was in St. Louis. He was about to catch a plane to China. But then 24 hours after that, he had to be in L.A. And I'm like, 
good for him. So he made 80, <laughs> he made eighty million on that business, but I made one point eight. But I was able to just sit at home the entire time and not go to China once. <laughs> <laughs> so I much prefer. It's like they're all working for me. And I get, I will make as much. That I, I is so make, wrong. <laughs> at, at, at any given, on any given business, I'm not going to make as much as the entrepreneur, but all together, I'm doing no work. And the I aggregate. might make as much as them. The aggregate like, is the key. The aggregate is what you're saying. I get it. I mean, I mean, like this, this, uh, just every business I'm in, they're working so hard right. and I'm telling dick jokes on a stage <laughs> and I get to ha I get to benefit from all of their hard work like it's great so now that said I'm trying to be an, um, I am starting something right now or playing around with the idea of starting something so we'll, we'll, we'll see but you know my uh, a key thing for me is that I, I I'm, I'm lazy as as Karen just said what if you're lazy I'm lazy <laughs> so, we all though I don't want to work so hard, I, except doing comedy, except doing things I love. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to do this business without working so hard. So typically what yeah. I do is I, I start a business and then I sell it immediately. That, that's my <laughs> MO. Get in, I think get a, a get book out. for slackers, this is like the, you know, a guide for how slackers can win. Like that, that's, I think a lot of us need that. Like, <laughs> well, you, you show your colors because you're a comedian and it takes a special kind of, and I say this with love because I'm talking about myself too, but it takes an entitled lazy person <laughs> to even start going into comedy and go, I deserve to speak and you deserve to not speak. <laughs> and I'm great at this, having proven nothing, but I'll get around to it. That's like, you know, I feel like if you can master that and you can like take that philosophy into like a, a laissez-faire, like kind of hands-off making money technique, then like you're so good. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of how I structured my life. Now that said, I probably could have made more money. Literally every minute one spends on comedy is you're not going to make money. You're <laughs> not. That, the you opportunity can... cost is so high. It's like right. millions of dollars. <laughs> but, but life is short and got to do I know so many people who um, you know they just they can't stop they they, they make a hundred million they can't stop they make a billion they can't stop they make five billion they can't stop are they really that happy I don't know maybe they are a little bit but uh, I you know I think it's much better to kind of get off the, the train a little bit particularly at some point and just do what you love like I was talking to um, I was talking to one guy, uh, Bill Perkins. He was a big trader. And my guess is he made about 50 million and his boss kept going. So Bill quit and this guy's boss, John Arnold, a uh, famous guy, he kept going. So he, he went to the 100 million, then the billion, then, then the billions. And when I, last time I spoke to Bill, he was on a yacht in Croatia with his brand new fiance. And, and I'm like, I, we're in an economic lockdown. How'd you get to Croatia? And I suddenly see in the background, we're on a Zoom call like this. It was Dan Bilzerian, who's like this famous billionaire poker player, son of a rich guy. And Dan Bilzerian pops in and says, well, if you're Bill Perkins, you could just, and you're in a 200 foot yacht, you can go to Croatia. And this guy was just living, mm -hmm. living the life of his dreams. No, you know, I agree with you. I always say in, in this, in, the, in my life, I always say I understand like why people, when they get to a certain 
financial uh, victory, why they keep going. Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Why not do what you want and love doing what you want versus like this money chase? Because to me, I, I just think it's pointless when you get to a certain point. If you can afford to do certain things, then where, where, what's the incentive? You know, well, I, I always- a lot, of people love, a, lot of, a lot of people love business. Like Mark, take a guy like Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban loves business. So he will just do deals for the rest of his life. That's what he loves doing. And then for some people, it's a more psychological thing, which is that they can't, they can't fill the emptiness inside of them. Like I'll tell you the reason why the first time I went broke is because I made this 15 million selling a business and I was just, I honestly, I was mentally ill. This was like over 20 years ago. I, I was like literally mentally ill. I thought with 15 million cash in the bank, and this is gonna sound bad to listeners, but I'm, I'm qualifying it by saying I was just a sick, sick person. I thought I was dead broke with 15 million cash in the bank. I thought I would not be happy unless I had 100 million cash in the bank. And to have 100 million, you need to take big risks um, with 15 million, and that's what I did. I would invest 2 million in this, 3 million in that, and they all went to zero. Wow, it's hard, it's painful to hear you say that. That's hard. It was horrible. And like yeah. everybody thought I was smart and I was just the stupidest <laughs> person in the world. And, and then you find out who your friends are and it turns out you have no friends when you're broke. Right. You have a lot of friends going up. You have no friends going down. And I lost my home. I moved out of New York City for a little bit because I couldn't afford to live anywhere in New York City. I had no money and no job. And, and I was used to being rich at least for a few years <laughs> and i couldn't do anything and i had to really start from scratch and the way you start from scratch is you just have to make sure you're not going to have like brilliant ideas when you're depressed and right. and 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 you're regretting everything and you're anxious about how you're going to feel feed your family um and nobody's talking to you and so you just have to like you have to really it sounds cliche but you have to start from basics like i had to make sure i was healthy so I started exercising and eating well and so on. You have to make sure there's no toxic relationships in your life because you're not going to start a good business if you're arguing with your spouse all the time. You have to be creative. So I started doing things to exercise my creativity and you have to learn how to handle failure, which I, which was very hard to do. Right. And that's honestly, you are like, stay on brand. Cause now you're a comic and it's constantly handling failure. Yeah. <laughs> One thing after another. It's true because you could be the best comedian in the world, but on any one night, and it's, it's always going to be the night where your brand new friends are always. showing up to see you. Oh, we finally <laughs> get a chance to see James Wing. That will be the one night in a year that you bomb completely. Absolutely not. I don't, I disallow people from coming. You know, someone that I love so much is like, can I come and see your show? No, you can't. It's like, you know, when the electrons all over the place, but then you measure it and it's in one spot. Like you coming to my set changes the set. You were not invited to my show. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's totally a great analogy, but I'll tell you one story. So. Tomorrow is um, the Hard Rock Cafe here in Miami. They've never done comedy before, but they decided to make this one room a comedy room. Seats like 400. And they, I'm the headliner. I'm going to go there and headline tomorrow. So it's the first time they're doing comedy. And Rob and my wife said, uh, okay, let's ask the neighbors. And I'm like, no, I don't even know. This could be a disaster. <laughs> I don't know what this room is like. I don't know what kind of people are coming to this. And she's like, okay, well, let's just ask the neighbors right next door. We won't ask anyone else. And I'm like, ugh, 
All right, ask them. And then a few <laughs> days later, she says, can we just ask the real estate agent who got us the place? I'm like, oh, all right, just them though. 40, she just bought tickets, 47 tickets. She just bought <laughs> of like our neighbors, all like the entire three blocks around here. They're all going. And so I'm almost guaranteed to bomb tomorrow. You know what? You just like lean into it. Sometimes you feel a nice bomb building up and you're like, I'm due for this. This is God and God. Yeah. I'm, I'm rich and I have a beautiful wife and five kids and I'm, I'm going to bomb. <laughs> so James, honestly, we could do this all night long. I, this has been the most fun interview and thank you so much for coming oh, on. Thank you guys. Um, and thank you, Karen, for uh, introducing me to this. This is fun. Definitely. Yeah, I'm so happy you got to meet the two. I mean, three black guys with good credit, but one you already knew. Um, so what do you, how can people reach you? What can they find of yours? What do you want to plug? Uh, I guess on Amazon, there's a whole TV series, uh, about me called choose yourself. So Love I, it. Amazon excellent. just released it last week. It's excellent. I watched the entire thing. I binged it last and I gave up Sunday football to watch it all. I was like, I'm going to watch one episode. And I got hooked on it. I watched the entire series. It was great. That, that I'm really glad to hear that. Now I'm going to have to watch it. Like, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. We, um, yeah, we're so happy that you came here. Um, as you guys know, I'm Karen Margolis. I am a black guy with good credit. <laughs> and I, I always think of you that way too. I don't know why. I, it, because I only do podcasts with black guys with great to questionable credit. <laughs> if we're including uh, all my podcasts. I want to, I want to see Sherrod's credit rating right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one can speculate. We can speak off the show. <laughs> um, but I am one third. And um, you can reach me at Karen Margolis on all social, K-E-R-E-N-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S. And I'm Matt Smith. Uh, again, I'd like to echo and thank you, James. We enjoyed you. And uh, I, I share in your uh, handsome privilege. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's tough, but some of us have it, some of us don't. But um, I know. We got to take advantage of it we, when we can. We got to take advantage. But uh, so I'm Matt Smith and uh, one half of Two Black Guys with Good Credit, and I'm out. Sean? I'm Sean Linda, the better half of Two Black Guys with Credit. James, once again, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for coming on. I could talk business with you and just life in general all day long. I think you dropped so many gems for our listener, and I just think keep it aggregate, man. Keep it aggregate, yeah. dude. That, Thanks for having and, me on, and let's do it again. Oh, Absolutely. definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, thanks for coming on. As I say every show, keep your money in your damn pocket, people. And you can always send us your email at tbgwgc at gmail.com. And I'm out. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.